did you catch that uh, Toronto Raptors Cleveland Cavaliers game the other night though I forgot to mention did you catch that one uh, who, who are the who are they <laughs> I'm not familiar what is this is this uh, a sport you're talking about yeah yeah is this is this sports yeah we're talking we're doing more sports chat the thing that our listeners love they crave the, it um, Raptors. My man OG Ananobi locked down Donovan Mitchell. Locked him down. Hmm. Was very entertaining. Not really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get it out of your system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like I think the Raptors are just like Cleveland's like Achilles heel this season. Yeah. Oh, they're the long they're long boys. Yeah, they are. He they're all long. long boys up there in Toronto. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Dirt. Drake just just didn't get those long jeans. Nope. He's no, he did Drake. not. Speaking of, he has more of a long so, face because of his sad lyrics. Oh, <laughs> which our listeners apparently know because listen to this. You know, Spotify Wrapped came out today. Does everyone gets to see what they listen to? Uh, their top artists of the year and all this stuff. And then on our end, we see we get like a rap for you all. And I was in there today poking around at our listener uh interests like your listen your your podcast listeners also listen to this and it gave me like the top five uh artists for okay people who listen to this show <laughs> number one was drake okay and a lot of drake heads who listen to this show yeah what are you guys doing that must be the canadian contingent that i'm bringing to the table I mean, maybe, but like most of our, not surprisingly, most of our listeners are in the U.S. Uh, yeah. I'd say about like 16% of our listeners are in Canada. Um, but like uh, the most listened to artist was Drake. I thought that was very funny. The second, can you guess what the second most listened to artist was? The second most listened to artist is uh, Fall Out Boy. <laughs> no, I really no. don't know. I'm not sure. Taylor Swift. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then we got so the. What goes, is the name for the fandom? The Taylor Swift fandom. I guess the Swifties. We got some I'm, Swifties I'm that listen to this program. It could, yeah. And this yeah. is like all time. It's not just like the last like week or two weeks where we did have the episode that kind of talked about her. Like this is. All time, all time listen listens. It's Drake, Taylor Swift, then Kendrick Lamar, and now here, Rob. We have to cancel our audience. Are you okay. ready? Fourth most most listened to artist by Insurgents listeners. Known rabid anti semite Kanye West. Oh shit! Oh my uh, You goodness. all are canceled. If you're you listening are to the show, consider yeah. your, consider yourself canceled. Not the paid interns. You are not canceled. Mm-hmm. You can stay. You get special <laughs> privileges. <laughs> you could listen to <laughs> Kanye West. You can listen to Louis Farrakhan speeches. Whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, we occur, encourage you to listen to Louis Farrakhan. <laughs> no, big, no, 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 no. Let's let's big <laughs> proponent personally of uh, no. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, and then Radiohead, which is just like okay. out of left field for yeah. the, the other listeners. That They're good, but field. just like Drake, Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, Taylor Swift, Radiohead. The whole Kanye West arc is just so fucking grim. Like to go, he's like the, the one of the biggest music stars on the planet. All the the wealthy A list celeb friends, and now he's just like hanging out in like the suburbs, some shitty strip mall with Nick Fuentes. And it's just like what what happened? You're the most, you were the most divorced person I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it is absolutely absurd. Yeah, yeah, it's pathetic. Very depressing. It's really pathetic. Um, other fun insights: we have two listeners in Saudi Arabia. Okay, so that's MBS. He's one of our big. He's probably because he's on the board. MBS is on the board, so he's listening to the. Yeah, right, right, right. He's an investor. Um, we have one listener in Algeria, one listener in Egypt. So please uh, tweet us uh, selfies. What's up? We want to meet yeah. our listeners. But I really think it would be hilarious if the two people in Saudi Arabia linked up. LinkedIn build. 
Yeah. Uh, but it's fun. It's fun to poke around some of the uh, the data. We have a really not surprising. Australians are like U.S. politics freaks. Uh, that's like our fifth most listen, like biggest li- listenership in the okay. uh, in the world. But that's that's cool. U.S., Canada, U.K., Germany, Australia. This data is like so interesting. Yeah, Australia is just like warm Canada, anyways. It kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Canada with koala bears or whatever. Whatever they got down there, all kinds of weird creatures, critters. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Two hundred and ten listeners in Iceland. If you are there, can I come stay with you? I want to visit. That's, Iceland. that's you know, nice. lots of lots of interesting data here, but I just yeah. thought the I was looking at the artists like Drake and then Taylor Swift. It's like that is that's great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't use Spotify, so I didn't get a Spotify wrapped. I I list, I use YouTube Music. Um mm-hmm. I haven't gotten they do do like an annual rundown or whatever, so I haven't gotten that yet. I know it's just going to be Steely Dan though. It's for the sec- for the it- second year running. Mine Mine sucks because I use a royalty-free playlist on Spotify when I do my TYT shows. Oh, okay. I have it running in the background all the time. So, so I'm just like, like cranking up the yeah. hours for this artist that I never otherwise listen to. And that's always my top artist. Okay. Yeah. My second, my second most listened to was uh, Counterparts, which... All right. I really love the new album and I, I listened to that a lot and then Mastodon, which I just like really got into one of their albums this year, uh, beyond crack the sky. I was, uh, listening to them a lot, like, the, like a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't gotten my yet. I'm sure the top one is Steely Dan. Probably my number two is most likely, uh, Donald Fagan, who's actually the, the singer of Steely Dan, his solo work. <laughs> <laughs> there'll probably be some, maybe be some michael mcdonald on there this was i was all yacht rock this year that's, that's cool really, man. keeping it breezy yeah absolutely i was keeping it breezy <laughs> as i as i want to do oh man yeah you want to plug our, our coming uh conversation here we got the most pro-labor yes. president in history doing some really uh-huh. pro-labor stuff right now and we were able to talk about it. have a good conversation about that today that's right. Matthew Cunningham Cook of The Lever joins us on the on today's episode. He has been covering the railroad workers and their push for a better contract. Now we have congressional involvement, White House involvement uh, that might just, you know, create a contract for them without their input or ratification, which is totally bullshit. We get into all the ways that sucks, how their requests are modest, how, quote, good billionaires like Warren Buffett are involved in this and are profiteering off of their work, you know, record profits, unsurprising, just like so many other industries, and, you know, what this means for labor relations in this country overall. So great conversation with Matthew. Definitely want to stay tuned for that. Uh, Before we get into that, Another ask that people head on over to theinsurgents.substack.com and become a subscriber. You get access to all of our paid episodes. We're now doing one a week in addition to our weekly free episode. Get access to the full back catalog. Officially become a paid intern Uh of The Insurgents. And you you support the show, which helps keep it sustainable. We really love doing it for you all. Sorry, we just had to cancel you for your music taste. A lot of you are listening to Kanye. Got to fix yeah. that. There's a there's a way to uncancel yourself though, as we as we mentioned. Yeah, that's right. That's right. General amnesty. Yeah, we <laughs> we did talk about this uh, earlier this week in the last uh, bonus episodes, though. But and Jordan, you know that how pro labor I am. And how much I support unions. Unfortunately, though, some of the paid interns of this program are attempting to unionize. That I don't, I'm not into that. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's going to disrupt the family atmosphere we have uh, in the Insurgents podcast uh, and the Insurgents LLC. So as much as I am pro-labor, pro-union, I do not support that. Uh, but still, I do encourage all our listeners to become paid interns of the program anyways you don't need a union when you're in the, when you're a paid intern of the insurgents. We make sure that you're all taken care of. <laughs> we want to get the content directly to you without any kind of middleman, you know. So I'm very pro labor, very pro union. Maybe just not in that case. Uh huh. 
It would be very disruptive uh, to the insurgents' economy if we were to do that. <laughs> like we were saying on the last episode, <laughs> we just really value our direct communication we exactly. have with our listeners. And if yeah. the listeners unionize, it just it creates an unnecessary middleman. Yeah. <laughs> and again, just that so bit was too aware, good. I had to do it again for the people that didn't yeah, get to hear it. Yeah. If you're in, if you're on the fence, don't worry. We have an eight-hour uh, mandatory training that you have yep. to go to. Uh, to hear about why that would be bad for us, the insurgents' family. Yeah, you show one of those cheesy videos, like, yeah, I, I, someone handed me a union card and they said I had to sign it. I thought I had a choice, but I was forced to join this union. The insurgents podcast uh, listeners, <laughs> I want to have a choice about these things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so psycho. Uh, yeah. But no, Matthews yes, has been is. doing great work on uh, railroad unions and their fight uh, for a better contract, which is totally, totally deserved. These people make America run, so we need to treat them well, pay them fairly, and hear their demands when they want modest things like paid sick time. When you're working uh, just brutal, brutal jobs, that's just, you know, bare minimum you can do it's these companies are lucky are lucky they're not asking for a lot more it's not like we're not still in a global pandemic either that would maybe right. be affecting people making people more sick you know yes so matthew's got a, uh, some great reporting over on the lever uh check that out and stay tuned for that conversation it's it's fantastic and did you just want to mention this uh this georgia runoff before we got to matthew Definitely, yeah. If you are in Georgia, make sure you go out and vote. If you know anyone in Georgia, make sure you get them to vote. This race is going to be extremely close, uh, and I can't think of a, a worse outcome after all our frustrations over the past two years and really mitigating the damage Republicans could have done in a, an election that really should have gone their way is giving them a 50-50 tie in the Senate. That would suck. Uh, a lot of it also affects how the Senate operates, the committee structure and the balances in committees that would affect uh, judicial nominations and appointments, which these are some of the things that Biden's going to have to rely on without a Democratic House. So, you know, some of the things that have happened over the past couple of years are generally good. Or we've never said it's perfect or great or utopian or anything like that. You all know uh, we have offered our fair share of criticism, but... We're also seeing the consequences of Democrats ignoring the judicial branch for the past few decades, while Republicans have made that a key part of their strategy. Well, this is an opportunity for Democrats to confirm a bunch of judges to counter that Republican balance. Within packing the courts, it's not just the Supreme Court, but within the broader packing the courts uh, concept is appointing judges to federal benches. This is something they're going to be able to do that they hadn't been able to do to a much greater extent over the past two years because of that tie. Literally just helping Warnock win changes their ability to nominate judges, which is something that'll help preserve some of these things that they, some of these gains that they did make over the past two years, and we hope are made over the next couple decades. So definitely get out there uh, and vote if you uh, live in Georgia, or if you know anyone in Georgia, make sure you uh, uh, you get them your friends and family out to vote. And if you have a couple bucks to spare, head on over to 51seats.com to make a donation to four grassroots groups with very, very small budgets, but who are doing like, absolutely critical work in the field to get out the vote. Like That's where the race is going to come down. It's in the field work. 51seats.com. Great. So let's get to our conversation with Matthew Cunningham Cook of Lever News. Again, it was a really good one. And Matthew's going to be joining the program right after this. Now, Jordan, you had mentioned something about small talk. Did you have any kind of ideas for where you wanted to go with that, or was that did just kind of both, a... I, well, did either of you watch the U.S.-Iran game yesterday? I didn't watch it, no. I did not. I heard Tunisia beat oh. France today, which is, you know, pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, France Jordan's a Francophile, like, so he's not happy about this. Yeah, this is, this is my team. But, but like, oh, okay. they didn't start 
like Giroud and Mbappe. Like they didn't like those. Like they they sat until like like they, Giroud didn't even play at all. I don't think. Um, they they were resting. They already qualified for the next round, so they were just. This was an easy game for them. It was like the B squad. So it's not that big of a deal. I don't know if Tunisia will advance. I don't think Tunisia even advances because Australia beat Denmark. So I think they needed the win, but I don't think they even advance. Huh. Yeah, the World Cup uh, structure is very complicated to me. I'm like, the NCAA seems much easier to comprehend uh, uh, by <laughs> comparison. <laughs> yeah. Um it's uh yeah it's it's basically like a point system in this first round and then however many points you get determine your placement in the single elimination round of 16 and then it goes from there uh but the US will now play uh Netherlands I believe this Saturday um that's going to be a tough one Netherlands is really good yeah the notoriously very strong teams there right yeah 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 I I think that's where the u.s gets eliminated like they're decent but i don't know they 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 really seem to have structured this entire team around pulisic and i mean he's their only goal scorer seems to be like the central point of attack which is good but you really need to like spread it out like he can't like if they just shut him down what's your what's your strategy so we will we will see maybe i'm wrong he also took one a pretty hard shot in the abdomen went on his goal, like the only goal in the game uh, against Iran yesterday that hospitalized him temporarily. So we will, we will see, but it was, it was interesting. And I was just really, I had mentioned before, I was really worried about like any the rhetoric around the game, just because of U S relations or lack thereof with Iran and what this weird nationalism uh, in events like this could inspire, but it seemed fairly tame of what I saw. Uh, it just, I just hate that shit. Like people trying to project their worldview onto shit that has no <laughs> connection to to international relations whatsoever. <laughs> I love projecting my worldview onto that stuff. I'm a big fan it's of doing fun. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You liked it with Cantor. Yeah, exactly. You liked it with Cantor yeah. in China. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was, yeah, I was absolutely, I was cheering on Iran to defeat the great Satan on the pitch, but <laughs> <laughs> couldn't get it done, unfortunately. But I mean. I definitely thought to myself it would be funny if Iran beats the US and knocks them out. Like I that would be that would be funny. Um but I don't know, it's like a little homerism in me. I was like, okay, yeah, it's good good for them. I got excited when he scored. It's okay. Yeah. Like like we talked about a couple weeks ago with Tom Williams, just these are just people who were born in the same place or live in the same place who like the same sport. It has nothing to do with mostly anything else. The real problem is just fifa itself and <laughs> and how it how how they selected the host country and all the problems all the problems there with treatment of fans and uh working conditions for people who built these stadiums that's the real problem yeah yeah i, I totally agree you know i think that the the fact that we haven't figured out to ho- a way to host a world cup without displacing people without hurting workers living conditions is is you're right it's such an indictment of of fifa mm-hmm. yeah well that's enough sports talk we can save some for the intro because i know rob's going to want to talk about the uh certain basketball game held on monday night <laughs> but uh matthew cunningham cook thank you for joining us we're happy to have you here you write for the lever uh, where you have done amazing work over the past few weeks covering uh, the battle between rail workers and their evil bosses with the government's involvement. But before we get to that, Matthew, we have a very serious question. And we ask everybody on this show the same question so we know uh-huh. who we're dealing with and whether or not this interview should even continue. Matthew, are you a gamer? I am not. Not at all. No. All right. I, I played Mac games as a kid. Uh, and, wow. and that was <laughs> that was the... The full extent extent of it. So if you want to, that's talk like an about- anti gamer. That's if you're, yeah, 
Yeah, if you want to talk about Ambrosia software games uh, from <laughs> 1999, I can I can rap with you guys about that. But anything more advanced, I I I, I have no knowledge whatsoever. Okay, well, let's scratch the next 20 minutes of discourse that we were planning on. Like what you're yeah. talking about, like escape escape velocity or what? Yeah, escape velocity, escape velocity override. I think, yeah, me and my brother. And my sister all played uh, those, uh, uh, Bubble Trouble. That was a popular one uh, with my sister. Trouble, okay. uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Um, <laughs> nice. There's not even like a, like just even an inkling within you where you're Any just analog games, board games, curious. that kind of stuff that counts as well. Board yeah. games. Uh, I mean, again, as a younger person, for sure. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I, uh, I'm a pretty boring guy when it comes to, <laughs> uh, anything fun. <laughs> Our listeners are going to revolt over this. They're just going to be, yeah, they're going to be furious. Well, I mean, Jordan really and I, off. I mean, yeah, and I'm even more, I mean, Jordan and I bonded at the, the Lever Company retreat because we were the two non-drinkers, which makes me even more boring. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, basically a joint every now and again is the, is the yeah. only advice I have. I won't say who, but I loved that like somebody who I least expected just whipped out like a bag of edibles. Just like this is a fun bag. <laughs> like, just thinking to myself, like, of all people, I did not have you pegged for this person. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm just watching and, and taking it all in. It was nice. Um but that's okay. We'll we'll give you a pass. Okay. Uh, yes, I apologize. It's all right. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm still kind of mulling that over. I'm not. Uh, I'm not fully ready I, to. But. I did work for for CWA, which is organizing uh, video game workers. Um, but that okay, happened that, after I cool. left. So that's that's probably my closest connection. I yeah. think you get grandfathered in. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> we'll give you. Yeah. I mean, you very necessary. It's way. certainly an industry that workers need more representation and need oh, more Jesus solidarity. Christ, yeah. Yeah, and well, it's it's both where workers are pissed off and exploited, and also tends to be owned by by you know yep. companies like Microsoft that have all these government contracts and these antitrust issues and things like that, and and also not like a heinously anti-union leadership, you know, like Amazon. So, so there's a lot of certainly CWA sees a lot of potential there, and there's a um, they they came to an organizing agreement with Activision Blizzard, but we'll see kind of how how robust that organizing agreement. <laughs> Is because lots of times companies will agree to organizing agreements with the unions and then back off from them fairly quickly. And the, the amount of profit that those AAA games make too is just like astronomical yeah. compared to the 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 working conditions and the compensation for the people that are doing the work and doing the programming and the design and mm-hmm. all the little stuff that needs to happen to create these games. The the discrepancy there is so massive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> working conditions too in terms of just you know obscenely long hours uh yeah no it's uh and you know i mean it's it's i i think it's like any under other industry but for whatever reason i think the folks who work on video games are see themselves as more proletarianized than other tech workers and i wouldn't say that i'm kind of the expert on why exactly that is uh, you guys would probably know better than me but i i do think that's fascinating is that basically the only two concrete ways into tech worker organizing have been either through video game workers or or you know the other kind of big group is you know tech workers who work at media companies <laughs> so kind of people following the journalism union wave yeah. Well, I, I, I went to a panel at Netroots where some of these workers who have been f- pushing for unions at these big companies uh, spoke and someone worked, someone had previously worked at Activision Blizzard. And I'm sure you both are familiar with just like beyond just the treatment of workers, like the rampant culture of sexual harassment and abuse there that employees brought to light uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, but beyond that, they were talking about, uh, on the working conditions point, like Matthew mentioned, something I had never considered is with this push for augmented reality and virtual reality through these headsets, you know, people need to test all this stuff. 
and they have people testing these products for like and, and games on these products for several hours a day straight when their own warning labels for consumers encourages you to limit it at 30 minutes at a time but they want these people who are working there to be in these headsets for like five six seven hours straight which is just like unbelievably unhealthy and i can't imagine like comfortable like i could i would beyond just getting dizzy i'd get sick and feel miserable and just like I, the, the psychological effects i would have just shutting yourself out from like contact for that long at a time just really deeply unhealthy and this culture of like grind and uh crunch in the in the run-up to the you know distribution of these games which ultimately they just end up releasing digital patches and expansions for later on seems totally unnecessary and driven by uh a totally unchecked greed and then they're all like merging so like it also presents like antitrust issues they're all trying to they're all like acquiring one another and like emerging into these giant like consolidating really just into like sony and microsoft and like a couple other big ones but just like it's really really alarming that i think a lot of people disregard just because it's video games so they don't treat it as the same type of like worker issue as say like a railroad or uh uh, I, I I don't know, just any other type of like construction union or uh, electrical workers or anything like that. I think it's just because of the product itself and how it has for years been seen as something like sophomoric and childish. People just don't take it seriously, and they should because it is it's a colossal industry with billions and billions of profit uh, for these companies every year. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a it's a huge threat, you know, to all of the Hollywood unions as well. So, you know, there's actors on video games. There's you know set designers on video games. There's you know uh, animators on video games. All these types of professions that, if you're in Hollywood, are unionized with strong wages and benefits packages that are, you know, being under. Uh, undercut by by the video game industry and that's exactly why in hollywood in the kind of like marvel assembly line form of filmmaking they're filming everything on green screen rather than on actual sets so they can outsource that to like a, a non-unionized uh animators in south korea or elsewhere right so they don't have to they don't have to go down that road uh, the fascinating thing is a bunch of the the South Korean animators are actually stalking horses for for North Korean companies. Is something that I have heard um, uh, that a bunch of the animation work in South Korea is actually subcontracted to state owned North Korean uh, firms, and apparently at 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 some points it's been a significant portion of of the hard currency, you know, or the U.S. dollars or euros that North Korea has been able to act this. These are all just rumors I've heard. <laughs> this is not reporting right here, but uh, I find that the Kim very family gets one over on Uncle Sam yet again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a movie I watched recently that was just like kind of wild to revisit: uh, the Interview. It is wild to that. <laughs> it's it's amazing that that got made in retrospect. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. I just it it feels weird watching it now. Yeah. Well, Seth Rogen admits that there was. I, I don't know if he explicitly said CIA involvement in the film, but I believe I, I think he mentioned spooks at one point or something like that. And he was like, yeah, it was like, it was different than getting any other movie approved. You know, it was like, I just had this idea. And then it was like, gr everything was greenlit without any editing or critical yeah. feedback whatsoever. It's like, okay. Wow. <laughs> I think yeah. more foreign like filmmaking companies should release films just gleefully laughing about blowing up American political leaders as well. <laughs> I'm sure America would react to that totally normally and they'd be totally okay with it. Totally fine with it. <laughs> it was it was just like what that the like the international event that that movie triggered too like i think just like watching that with a historical context and understanding of like what came after it was all i think it was ultimately released on like youtube for free or something because uh, they did they had to pull the theatrical release after the hack and then like sony didn't want it and then another studio picked it up and they i think they released it digitally but i was just like thinking back as i was watching it just like and for some reason, my partner and I have had been on like a Seth Rogen like stoner movie kick over the past couple of weeks. So we re watched like uh, This is the End and um, 
pineapple express and then finish with that one it was just like this was just like a couple like goofy guys just trying to fuck around have fun they ended up creating this like international incident on accident uh <laughs> <laughs> with that hack too which was just like i think toppled the studio head yeah 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 no that's a very good point yeah i mean i i you know uh, alex coburn the former nation uh, columnist uh, who died a decade ago he said that uh, ian fleming caused the cold war uh, <laughs> James Bond. Uh, and I wonder if, if the interview is basically the genesis to North Korea, you know, sex tubaling down on their nuclear program. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, that's a, I think that's a theory we can adopt and yeah. just start espousing. I like yeah. it. I mean, the U.S. military also parking right on their border and aiming yeah, nukes at them yeah. for the last 70 years is also probably no. something to do with oh, it for sure. as yeah. well. That's just called self-defense. We're defending ourselves. <laughs> That's too materialist in analysis for me. Yeah, right? none of that. None of that here. Come on. Oh, man. But speaking of working conditions, that oh, is something that go. has been in the... Yeah, you like that? Yeah. It's something that's been in the news this week uh, and for the past couple of weeks, but definitely more this week. As the battle and struggle between uh, rail workers and their unions and the the evil bosses, these railroad barons, uh, has come to a head, and Biden and congressional leaders are desperately trying to avoid a strike uh, after you know these these unions rejected this deal that was brokered without their involvement and uh, the workers' involvement specifically. And, uh, Matthew, you've done some great reporting at the lever about this. Uh, how did we get to this point? So we now have Congress trying to pass a bill to, uh, you know, broker a, a deal. And some of the issues that workers have raised is they don't have paid sick time and they need it. And their ask of seven days, which is, you know, pretty tame compared to, uh, other employers' sick day policy. Uh, was met with uh, opposition from some from some folks in Congress. Shocker, Matthew. How did we get here? What's going on? I mean, it really kind of goes back to I think a uh, a Faustian bargain that some of the more conservative unions agreed to uh, over ninety years ago with the Railway Labor Act, uh, where it was the first. It was passed when Republicans controlled both houses of Congress and the White House. It was in response to a massive strike wave of workers that had been going on for over 30 years. Uh, but it placed a bunch of really significant restrictions on the ability of unions to and workers to exercise their rights on the job, in particular, their right to strike. Um, and... Uh, when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't include uh, railway workers. And so they've been stuck with this legislation that while it contains some elements that you could construe as more positive for workers than the NLRA on the whole is really about cracking down on workers' right of expression under the First Amendment, which is kind of what you know, the the lefty radical approach to analyzing New Deal labor reforms is like this is an extension of of First Amendment rights. You know, this isn't even though it's explicitly couched in the NLRA is about, you know, regulation of commerce because strikes are unfortunate. Really, the NLRA couched the right to strike into law for the first time and workers under the NLRA can strike at any time, you know. Unions voluntarily enter into no strike agreements that present uh, prevent workers from striking at different times. Unions in the private sector, uh, but if you don't have a contract, you know you can strike at any time under the NLRA. That's not true uh, with the Railway Labor Act. Workers have been working without a contract for, I believe, three years uh, right now. Um, and it comes with, you know, it, starting in the late 70s and mid 80s under Carter and Reagan, the deregulation of the railroad industry, uh, which then led to this thing called precision scheduled railroading, 
which is really just like another word for what we've seen in basically every industry, whether it's nursing, whether it's fast food, whether it's uh, teaching, whether it's, (laughs) you know, any major industry that you can speak of, which is, you know, lean, you know, as operating as close to the bone as possible with as little staff as possible with having just-in-time models that uh, ensure that workers are effectively on call for huge portions of their time. Uh, and it's it's part and parcel, I think, of the broader story, which is the, the selling out of the American worker over the last uh, 50 years, that if you, you know, walk around our hollowed-out towns and cities uh, across this country, uh, you'll see it. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's the that's the the big picture background. More immediately is you know yeah. So all that leads to a situation where workers get very little time off. There's there was uh, Warren Buffett's uh, BNSF, uh, one of the largest railroads, introduced this draconian. Um, uh, scheduling policy in February that basically leaves workers with no free time on their own. Uh, and it's really, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting. If you look on Twitter, kind of the, the I mean, this is an industry that, let's be clear, is overwhelmingly male. Uh, so the, the guys who are um, advocating guest votes on these contracts, which is, it's a significant portion. So, I mean, that that's one of these stories. One of the things that buttresses uh, Biden's very annoying arguments on the subject is that is that the three unions that rejected the contract uh, did it by relatively close margins. There wasn't a situation where it was like 95% of the workers uh, voted to reject it. And if you just look on social media, the workers who kind of supported our uh the deal are kind of into hustle culture <laughs> you know like they're uh, you know some of the guys i saw are into crypto or you know investing and they make good money you know and so i kind of see this as you know the railroad industry trying to institutionalize hustle culture into its railroad contracts with the expense Jesus. being uh, workers' sense of self-regard, their ability to spend time with their families, their ability to go to the doctor, um, uh, and their ability to, you know, lead their own lives as they choose. Um, where we are now is, is yeah, there's three unions that have rejected the contract, uh, and the Biden administration has asked Congress to... Uh, shut down the strike uh, and implement uh, the agreement uh, that was agreed to by union negotiators. Whoa, 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 though, because that I'm not so sure about, because I'm sure that Joe Biden has said many times he's the most pro-labor president in history. So that doesn't sound (laughs) like something you would do. Are you sure about this? Yeah. I mean, what the fascinating (laughs) thing about this that we reported is Joe Biden was one of just six senators, you know, along with people like Paul Wellstone, uh, who opposed the back-to-work order that Congress uh, issued to the railroad unions in 1992. Um, And again, this is kind of in the context of Joe Biden, you know, being a senator who, you know, effectively created the the student debt crisis, uh, who, uh, you know, championed uh, NAFTA and uh, permanent normal trade relations with China, um, uh, who led the campaign for the bankruptcy bill. But on this issue, uh, he was very good. And he explicitly couched his opposition to the back to work order because he rode Amtrak every day from Delaware to D.C. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's it's certainly a big about about face uh, for the administration, but it comes in the face of the entirety of the business lobby uh, effectively demanding that Congress do this. <laughs> um, and so it's not just the railroad industry, it's the agricultural industry, it's the Chamber of Commerce, it's anybody dependent on railroads is interested in this back-to-work order because I think... They're acutely aware that given the critical role that railroad workers play in the in both domestic and global supply chains, um, that the workers would almost certainly kick 
the railroad's ass, you know, I mean, very badly, you know, it's, it's very different from 30 years ago. These global supply chains are so much more brittle uh, now than they were three decades ago. So a, even a two day strike would be totally disastrous for this industry, materially affecting profit margins, not just for railroads, but, but again, across industry as a whole. And capital doesn't like that. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the amazing thing about some of these arguments coming from the Biden administration and other prominent people in the, in the U.S. government, the media saying like, well, you know, of course, you know, we're so pro-union and so pro-labor. And normally I would support strikes, but reluctantly, we've got to make sure we legislate this one to shut it down because it would be so disruptive to the economy. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of the point. That's the point is that it is, is disruptive to the economy. The fact that these striking workers uh, even like you're describing, like even if striking for a couple of days would lead to such massive consequences for these powerful uh, capitalist interests, that kind of indicates that these are extremely essential workers that should probably just be paid what they're being asked for and given the sick days that they're being asked for. Um, and they're using this excuse that, oh, it's going to be it's going to have these negative economic consequences as the reason why they must legislate them back to work. And it's like that's yeah, that's the whole purpose of uh, labor organizing and, and uh, union activity like this which is that yeah we do have the power to disrupt the economy and if you don't give us what we want that's what we're going to do and it's remarkable that they're kind of trying to make this argument about it yeah i think the other thing is like even if their main concern was from a business perspective then you would have to think that there would be more discussion about brittle supply chains and and how we make them more dynamic and resilient and you know, that's that's not happening either. So really what they're saying is is like, yes, you know, public policy enacted by both parties in Congress have made uh, supply chains as brittle as they are. And the moment that workers start to raise that as a significant issue and exercise their power in those uh, brittle supply chains, we're just going to shut them down. And. I really want to stress that this is this comes at a time where some of these railroads are experiencing record profits. In 2021, uh, you know the the railroad that Warren Buffett uh, controls uh, had a record record earnings of six billion, and his net worth jumped fifty percent during the pandemic to a hundred billion. And this is a guy who people praise as, you know, the altruistic billionaire, like the the, the good billionaire, because he's talked about the importance of uh, uh, people with that much wealth giving back. And a lot of you could, you know, if you really wanted to dig, dig into it, a lot of what uh, the wealthy does to, quote, give is just move money into foundations or trusts and uh, avoid uh, taxes uh, with some like, you know, charitable donations that get their name on things here and there. And uh, in in a letter to uh, uh, or in his defense of their profits, he explicitly or, or, or argued that workers were not contributing to these skyrocketing profits. And, you know, the CEOs you wrote in September, the CEOs of railroad companies were paid over two hundred million dollars. And uh, these workers uh, have not asked for much relative to what they do and what they put in and even the benefits packages that other industries and other companies have they're asking one of their asks is for sick time could you talk about uh warren buffett's involvement in all this i know you have some you have some thoughts on him as a person and his you know people's perception of him as a good billionaire and also just what they're asking for and, and explain to, to folks uh listening why it's not an unreasonable demand, why it shouldn't be met with this kind of opposition. Yeah. I mean, what's clear is that the, the contracts would have been ratified if there had even been three paid sick days on the table <laughs> uh, because Jesus the ratification Christ. votes uh, were so close. Right now, it's one paid sick day that you have to give 48 hours advance for. Um uh, to uh, in, in the in the contract. So given how close the votes were, really would have been 
it, like two more additional days. Uh, and yeah, they were there. They refused to do it. And that's it's I don't think you can underestimate Warren Buffett's role as kind of a coordinator of capitalist opinion on this because he's the biggest player in the room. Um, my favorite anecdote about Warren Buffett is that, you know, in every profile of him, it's like, oh, he lives in his same quaint house in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> And then the the reporter, you know, invariably pro-Buffett, will then be like, the only luxury he affords himself is a private jet. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, that... Amazing. To me, I think that just underscores everything wrong with the press's coverage of Warren Buffett is, you know, I mean, private jets are extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily taxing on the environment, and we have no idea how often he uses it. He probably uses it all the damn time. Um, I, I think the other thing that's really worth noting about Warren Buffett is he's explicitly said that his and Berkshire Hathaway's strategy is to invest in monopolies. He's like, I like moats around my business. That means that you dislike entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, you don't want yeah. you don't want anybody doing anything interesting. That's a free market we hear so yeah. much about. Yeah, you're you're basically saying, you know, I want, you know, socialism for me, Warren Buffett. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and that's that creates so we, we actually covered another I mean the connection that we should probably be more explicit about now that I'm thinking about it is, you know, there's actually a real connection between the railroad workers on one hand and the Jackson water crisis on the other hand, which we've also covered at the lever, where Berkshire Hathaway is the largest shareholder in Moody's investor service, the main bond credit rating agency. And so what we reported in, uh, I believe in October is what we, when we report, we reported this is that, you know, Moody's basically because they're a bunch of racists who hate working class people and poor people, uh, you know, has artificially lowered Jackson's credit rating repeatedly, even as the fundamentals of the city have improved under a, a, a mayor, you know, Lumumba, who is not totally corrupt, uh, or not corrupt at all, let, let's be clear, unlike his successor, who is uh, who was totally corrupt. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, you know, Warren Buffett is frank. He's like, I invest in Moody's because they're, they're an oligopoly. You know, there's only three credit rating agencies that are certified by the federal government is nationally recognized statistical rating organizations and I get to be a major shareholder in one of them. Uh, and uh, the fascinating thing is, you know, while Moody's is downgrading Jackson's credit rating, preventing their ability to invest in their own water infrastructure and increasing the debt service payments that they have to pay to Wall Street, uh, his own companies you know, basically get a Buffett bonus, you know, uh, uh, from Moody's. And so this has been borne out by academic research and also by the European Competition Authority, I believe, which fined uh, Berkshire Hathaway a few million. It was a slap on the wrist, but it was very helpful for those of us who hate Warren Buffett to point to that, 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 that regulators have found that Moody's artificially inflates the ratings of, of his companies. Um, you know, and and then they also will selectively apply their ratings uh, methodologies and not look at some real dangers under the hood. So, you know, any I think person looking at BNSF would be concerned about its rapidly aging workforce, about its employee morale, about its um, uh, levels of turnover, about the workers leaving. The railroad, that should be a, uh, a concern for Moody's, but of, of course it's not. And and why is it not? Because Warren Buffett is Moody's largest shareholder. Um, so that that's a little bit of a tangent, tangent, but I think it underscores, you know, this this octopus-like stranglehold that the Oracle of Omaha has on our economy as a whole and how unwilling... Uh, both the press and you know most politicians are to to call him out on this and and t 
talk about breaking up Berkshire Hathaway. You know, we talk about breaking up big tech, breaking up Wall Street. I say, let's break up Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, the good thing about those rating agencies, as we saw during the financial collapse, is this is right, really yeah. just their opinions. And they would never give inflated ratings to something nope. they ultimately knew was just full of shit. So this is just a free speech at work. Yeah. Yep. Yep. This is never. Yeah. This has never come back to blow up in anyone's face in the past. So should be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I, like I wanted to draw the distinction as well between you talked about the way that the media talks about Warren Buffett and other billionaires like him. You know, famously the uh, just recently, like with Sam Bankman Freed, the whole altruistic billionaire thing they were doing. They're trying to do that with him before his whole uh, persona and his whole business model was exposed as being totally fraudulent. Um, but not only do they talk about these billionaires like this, but I just to go back to this rail strike in particular, it's been really interesting seeing corporate media talk about that and frame the strike in these, in these very anti-worker ways as well. Just as always, as when it ever comes to these kinds of like labor activities, um, taking like fear mongering about the idea of a strike. Oh, and the terrible economic consequences, the holidays are around the corner. This could be, you know, have these devastating impacts on the economy, um, inflation, and, and using all these kind of like scary words to describe this and taking all the responsibility for that and putting it on the workers and saying, like, are you sure you want to strike? I mean, where are these greedy workers are to want to strike and they want to cause all these terrible problems and never, ever making the case that it's the railway bosses and the people that are, uh, you know, have the ability to give these workers uh, what they're asking for, the very meager demands that they're asking for and never making the case that they should just be paid what they're what they deserve or given the benefits that they deserve and always taking the responsibility for the strike and whatever negative consequences they're fear-mongering about and putting it on the backs of the workers yeah i mean the media you know i mean i think that there's a reason why journalism is the least economically diverse profession you know uh <laughs> you know, I grew up in a household with, you know, both parents, college educated professionals, and I can guarantee to you that I'm in the bottom quintile of householding, <laughs> you know, for the average journalist. And that has, you know, that has real ongoing effects, I think, on the way that press coverage happens is that people don't know workers, as people meaning journalists, people in media don't know workers, they don't talk to workers, they don't respect workers, they don't see workers, they don't view workers as human. Uh, and I think this applies to not just the railroad workers, but frankly, every, every, you know, industry subject. I think that this is a particularly kind of good example, because frankly, the stronger the unions are, the the more critical the workers are in a supply chain, the more angry the media will be about them trying to exercise their rights. But I, I think it's, you know, there's both these perverse incentives where you have a massive media monopoly that, you know, basically dictates kind of official coverage of basically everything on the one hand. And then you have a population of journalists who really have very little connections to the way that the vast majority of Americans live and experience life. Uh, you know, I, I think this is a, it's a huge ongoing enduring problem. And yeah, I think you, you describe it very well, Rob. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, that's something that's fascinating to me is the way that people in our media class, people in our political class love to lecture other countries um, about this precious press freedom that they care so much about, whether it's China or whether it's Cuba or Nicaragua or Venezuela or, or what have you, even though there is a there is a powerful press oligarchs in Venezuela as well. But that's the thing is that as much as we love to lecture other countries about press freedom, you know, someone did once say that, uh, you know, press in these capitalist countries, it produces a capitalist press, which leads to a corrupt press. When our media is owned by these powerful oligarchic business interests, they're always going to be presenting news uh, in that kind of slant and with that bias, which I, which is exactly why we are, you know, on the fringes of things like here on this podcast or with the work that you do at the lever, we're trying to chip away at that, but we'll never have the same level of, of penetration and platform that these powerful uh, corporate media establishment 
assessments do. And they're always going to frame these issues uh, in this way while simultaneously, again, lecturing other countries about uh, how wonderful our free press is. Yeah, every Murdoch-owned paper across the world supported the Iraq War. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I'm like, you know, we allow an Australian sociopath to control the media discourse of the United States, an entirely different country. And that's, you know, (laughs) that's what we're, it's Rupert Murdoch's world. We're just living in it. (laughs) Yeah. So where do we go from here? Uh, there's some movement in Congress. Uh, people like uh, Cornyn initially said he could see some Republican support for the progressive push for more sick time for these workers. Rubio also said that the workers' interests should come first. Uh, the House passed over their version today, now it goes to the Senate. Cornyn walked back his uh, initial support for this this paid sick time for, for rail workers. Uh, I would imagine Rubio's going to follow suit once they get a couple calls from some of their corporate donors. Because that's ultimately who is pushing uh, against this, again, very, very modest request. So uh, what do you think is going to happen in the Senate? And uh, do you think this progressive push to guarantee paid sick time for workers will be successful, Matthew? I, I really don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it does kind of feel like a Lucy with the football situation, you know? Um, yeah. Surely the Senate will pass this. Yeah, right. You know, is it's, yeah, it's, I, I mean, I think the, it's, you know, they are, the, the one positive I think from all of this is that they're going to be back at the bargaining table very quickly. You know, I mean, my suggestion to the unions is that there, you know, would be there are a bunch of strategies that you can take kind of without going on strike. Um, uh, But I'm you know, it's it requires coordination across unions. You know, there's 14 different unions uh, and then the smaller ones tend to be the most, you know, critical you know i mean certainly in terms of you know like a railway signalman you know is a has a lot more ability to shut down or slow down things than other groups of workers like conductors or engineers um that that's kind of my feeling is that the fight continues you know this group railroad workers united is is amazing because they're trying to bring workers across crafts you know i mean that that would be my suggestion to the workers after this, if if the contract is voted through, is you guys have to figure out how to a way to for you guys all to be in one union, which with this new leadership of the Teamsters might actually be possible. <laughs> um, it's like, let's see some consolidation. Let's, you know, it seems like it would make sense to have all the rail workers in the, tra- in the Teamsters. Um, and that would certainly help to have a more coordinated and effective approach uh, next time uh, at the bargaining table. You know, I mean, it's it's depressing, you know, that that probably the most likely thing is just that this contract gets put through. But, you know, labor has swung back from much, much, much more significant defeats uh, in the past. And, um the biggest and most important thing I think is to have is for the unions to have an open assessment of what went right and what went wrong in this bargaining campaign and what could go differently uh, the next time. Uh, and that's that requires kind of drawing on the common and collective experience, sophistication and knowledge of the tens of thousands of rank and file workers who exercised their democratic rights to vote against this contract. So what if this passes? They don't have some of these provisions that workers are asking for. This passes in Congress, I mean, and that's just kind of like issued to them by decree. Uh, I mean, is there a potential for like a wildcat strike? Like, do you think, is there anything they can do if, you know, things like uh, uh, paid sick time uh, aren't included. I mean, wildcat strikes are really difficult. Um, you know, it's it's not you know a wildcat strike where there isn't a union is much easier actually. So if there is a wildcat strike, you know the uh, the judges will start finding the unions. They 
prosecutors might put labor leaders in jail. Um, uh, there, you know, will almost certainly be workers fired. It's it's a huge, uh, very dangerous, volatile step um, to take. Now, I'm I'm I would never tell workers to not go on strike if that's what they the decision they come to. But the other thing is, you really. You, you want to have as much unanimity as possible. And when, you know, the, the, I believe the biggest margin against the contract was 57 to 43, you have to wonder if those, those 43% of workers who voted in favor of the contract, uh, in that one particular union, but in other, I mean, there was, you know, many other unions that voted to ratify the contract. And then, um, so that's kind of that's the other thing is that uh you know in a wildcat strike there's there's no requirement uh right now under the the terms of membership of of being in a rail union you have to honor picket lines uh this is uh, picket lines of other rail unions this is a, a requirement of membership of being in a rail union so if you cross a picket line that another rail union has set up, you are liable to be put up on disciplinary charges inside of your union, be expelled from the union, and as a result, forced to resign your job in the railroad industry. That does not apply in the case of a wildcat strike. Um, So, of course, I mean, any strike will, given the fact that supply chains are so brittle, will will really disrupt things. But it really does put a group of workers at risk. It would almost certainly be divisive um, at this time. And it and there's a very high likelihood that that there would be some very significant negative consequences. All of this underscore underscores, I think, just how tilted labor law is in the U.S. toward the bosses. Um, on the one hand, and two, I think just the residual effects of the crushing of um, the labor movement in manufacturing. You know, the United Auto Workers represented... Uh, over 2 million workers in 1980, uh, and it's now down to 400,000, 500,000. Wow. Um, and that's in auto. You know, they represented 2 million workers in manufacturing, and they're under now under half a million in manufacturing. It's a better way of saying it. Um, you know, the Teamsters as well has seen similar precipitous uh Declines that they've only made up for by new organizing in healthcare and the public sector. And my own former employer, CWA, very similar. The breakup of the Bell Center of the Bell System in the mid '80s led to hundreds of thousands of layoffs. And what that means is that Congress is just much more likely to do whatever they want because so many fewer workers, particularly in the private sector, are in unions. And I think that's. To end on a more hopeful note, I mean, that's what's so exciting about the the Amazon and Starbucks uh, and Trader Joe's unionizing is is that's really kind of what all workers and railroad workers in particular really need to address this. We need more workers in unions uh, because that's the only way we're going to upset this this really aggressively anti-worker power dynamic that we see in the U.S. today. Yeah, I mean it's it's you point out this this massive drop in um worker power and and um union activity and the the offshoring of manufacturing that's kind of the amazing thing is that you know um as people you know people in the United States government have have willingly handed over the whole entirety of these this massive manufacturing industry to China and to other nations in the developing world through through um you know organ- through deals like nafta with joe biden himself gleefully uh uh supported when it was uh, when it was popular and now they're kind of starting to realize how they're losing on this global stage in 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 becoming in no longer being the sort of top trading partner for the rest of the world and they're sort of getting to the idea or starting to talk about wanting to reshore manufacturing, but it's like they're at this massive deficit because they they willingly handed over the entire manufacturing industry uh, for like essentially in order to disrupt this kind of activity to not so these powerful capitalist interests wouldn't have to pay their workers 
workers and um, a living wage and give them all these benefits that unions had fought for over the years. So it's kind of funny now seeing them scramble to try and uh, square that circle when they're the ones that, uh, you know, created the problem in the first place. Yeah, I know. It's a huge quandary. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is a quandary. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, yeah. The, the, I think that's, I mean, just circling back to the media component is, you know, it's like, spend some time in, you know, like a Waffle House anywhere, you know, and you'll see the effects of these policies on ordinary people and how destructive it's been uh, and how it's gutted and devastated entire communities. And, uh, you know, instead, you know, when reporters enter these communities, it's to say that it's, you know, that the only thing going on here is, you know, some type of racial or cultural backlash, which is a component to be sure you know that is a component but it's not the main story the main story is that these communities have been destroyed that's that's the story well i even saw someone talking about these rail workers being like well you know anecdotally these rail workers are very trumpy and it's like yeah why have these workers moved away from the liberal establishment of the democratic party it's just a total mystery as they're literally trying to legislate them back to work and not taking their side in yet another kind of labor dispute well i can't believe that these workers are abandoning the democratic party in droves so yeah. can, how could this have happened uh, we're all uh, looking for the guy who did this every democratic presidential candidate in the 1960 uh, primaries launched their campaigns at the labor day uh, March in Detroit uh, in 1959. Every single one of them, or every major one. I, I, can't, I can't say it. And it's like, imagine that happening today. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, no, I think you led, did leave us on a on a positive note, though, which is you know new for this uh, for this program. So, Jordan, did you have anything else? No, I just wanted to say thanks for joining us, Matthew, uh, and wanted to ask you to plug your work where people can find you and your reporting yeah i'm a reporter at the lever um this uh online investigative news outlet uh and you can find us at levernews.com matthew thank you so much for joining us cool thanks for having me on guys i appreciate it Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>